Wow. Well, this is awesome. Um, I guess I didn't introduce myself for any new people here. My name's David, and that was my amazing wife, Trisha, who is uh, also on worship team today. And and we just uh, are so excited about this year. God's doing amazing things, and we have an opportunity to participate with him. And isn't that exciting? Now, um, I wanted to... uh, This has been kind of a funny series because uh, I've been talking about the kingdom of God and just due to circumstances and timing and everything, it's been kind of like a message here, message there, but so it all kind of fits together. Uh, But it's awkward in some ways because ideally it would be like one after another and so everything's fresh in your mind. Uh, But I I felt to continue on this because the the, the message of the kingdom of God is absolutely crucial. It's absolutely crucial for understanding the whole New Testament, especially the teachings of Jesus. If anything, Jesus, if there's one thing that Jesus is about, it's about the kingdom of God. He talked about it all the time. He talked about it more than anything. He talked about it in every which way, in beatitudes, in parables, in admonitions. He talked about it nonstop. In fact, when I first started this series, I asked uh, how many times do you think that Jesus talked about love in the Synoptic Gospels? And most just assume it's like a hundred times. <laughs> that's an exaggeration. But you would think it's a lot, right? Because love is so emphasized and with good reason, because that's crucial in the New Testament. Right? That's the number one principle. But the point is, did you know he only talks about it twice? Now, I'm talking about in Matthew, Mark, Luke, the Synoptic Gospels. He talks about it twice. He actually mentions it three times, but twice in uh, uh, he teaches about it. One is love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Love your neighbors yourself. And, the other, and love your enemies. That's it. You know how many times he talks about the kingdom of God? In Matthew alone, he mentions the kingdom of God 49 times. But that's just the phrase kingdom of God. If you use the word kingdom, it's about double that. It's almost 90 times. In Matthew, you know, like, and unfortunately, it tends to get ignored in the church. Now, uh, there's good reason for that, and that's sort of what I've been talking about, because there's a lot of misunderstanding surrounding what the kingdom of God actually is all about. But if you guys are here for the last couple weeks, talked about how our theme for 2017, ultimately our theme forever, but 2017 is a spirit-driven life. We want to be people who are spirit-driven. We also want to be people who fully embrace the Word and the Spirit. In order to embrace fully the Word and the Spirit, fundamental to understand what the kingdom of God is. And we talked about that before, but understanding the significance of the Holy Spirit in the New Covenant, it's essential to understand what the kingdom of God meant, but also to understand it as a framework for the whole New Testament, because every New Testament writer had this as a framework and a foundation from which they understood what was happening. And so to understand every New Testament writer, you have to have this as an underframe, as a framework. And that's why I'm spending so much time on this, because... A lot of the stuff that uh, I'm spending a bunch of time talking about, the problem for us is we're 2,000 years removed from what the, the Jewish messianic expectations were at the time of Jesus Christ. And so they had a whole bunch of presuppositions. They understood when Jesus, or actually when John the Baptist said, repent, the kingdom of God is near. Everyone knew what they were talking about. He didn't have to explain this is what the kingdom of God is because everybody was expecting it for hundreds of years. They just knew what it meant because there were certain end times expectations that they had. 
But we're, we're so far removed from that that we don't have that framework. And so a lot of this stuff that I've been teaching and talking about is just to get us at the point where we have an understanding. Okay, this is when they said kingdom of God, what it actually meant. Okay, now because it's such an important part of Jesus, if you look at all the synoptic gospels, whenever they summarize the teaching of Jesus, always do so in terms of the kingdom of God. And I have some references there. But because it's so important, it's imperative for us to understand what the kingdom of God means. And when I first started this series, I asked, how many of you never heard a message in your entire lives on the kingdom of God? And there was a number of people. Because people don't talk about this very often. I mean, you give lip service to it, right? Like, oh yeah, let's do things for the kingdom. But what does that even mean? What does the kingdom even mean, right? And if I asked you know, you guys, we probably get 50 different answers of a definition of what the kingdom is. And so anyway, it's been sort of uh, my goal, I felt, to really try and get us to the place where we understood what the kingdom of God actually means. And this is our sixth message, I believe. And so if you want, you can go on our website and get the other five. Um, I'm going to be doing some review, though, because it's been a while since I talked about this because of Christmas, but, but not only that, um, there's some new people and so forth. So, so what I like to do is sort of make sure that every message in and of itself can be a standalone message. So if you have never heard any of this before, that's hopefully fine. But as a result, there'll be some review, uh, some refreshers for, for the rest of us. Um, and that's important anyway. It helps retention when you repeat, right? But anyway, I've been kind of using this. This is Mark's summary of Jesus, the whole of his ministry and teaching from Mark 14 and 15. Okay, it says, Now after John was put in prison, Jesus came to Galilee preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God and saying, The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. That's what the, go- the gospel is. The- you know, the great commit when Jesus talks about, and the gospel of the kingdom will be preached to all nations, then the end will come. It, the gospel of the kingdom, not, we've been preaching a partial message for the most part. We've been preaching the gospel of salvation. The ki- gospel of the kingdom is a lot bigger than that. That's a part of it. Don't get me wrong. But that's how crucial it is. What's the gospel of the kingdom, Jesus? What does Jesus say? Seek first what? The kingdom. How do we do that if we don't know what the kingdom is? When you pray, pray, our Father in heaven, that would be your name. Your what? Kingdom come. Your will be done. So super important. Anyway, so now what is the kingdom of God? Very good question. And the, one of the reasons that it's, it's hard to get an answer is because there's some misunderstandings about what, the, what, the, what we even mean by the word kingdom. Okay? And I spent essentially the first three messages kind of diving into this because it's uh, so crucial. But what I mean specifically is that there's often a misunderstanding whether we're talking about realm or reign. So what, I'm, what do I mean by that? When we usually use the word kingdom in English, we think of a geographical location, like the kingdom of England, right? How many of you think when you think kingdom, you're thinking geography? And that's part of the issue, okay? Because Jesus isn't talking about geography. He's, he's talking about reigning, a reign, a time of God's rule. And I'm going to just go on this a little bit. 
So for the first few sessions, we focused on the first clause. The time is fulfilled. Notice, it, notice the time is fulfilled. It's a, we're talking about, the, it has to do with the category of time and fulfillment. So we spend the first few times talking about how the kingdom of God belongs to the category of a time being fulfilled. Because if you think about it, the time is fulfilled. Wait a minute, if he's using the language fulfillment, that means there was promises that are being fulfilled. Right? And in order to understand those, you have to understand what they were expecting, what the promises were. And that's why we went through the Old Testament, the intertestamental period, giving a foundation of what those promises were and what they were expecting. What is it that's being fulfilled? But the important thing is, is this idea of time. And I want to give you an example uh, that I always give, but I think it's a good one to illustrate the point. So I'm going to give you a sentence. During the reign, or sorry, during the kingdom of George III, the, king, the American colonies revolted against the kingdom of England. During the kingdom of George III, the American colonies revolted against the kingdom of England. What could you replace the first kingdom with during the reign of George III, right? George III reigned for a period of 25 years. The kingdom of England was before and after the geography, but there was only one time period when he reigned, and that is the idea we're talking about. A period of time, at the time of God's rule, a time when God would come sovereignly rule and reign over the affairs of humankind, Okay, And we're talking about primarily the time of the end when God exercises his sovereignty and rules supremely over his creation. This is what they were expecting. They had all of these expectations. This is what's going to happen and the end's going to come and then God's kingdom's going to come. And later in this message, I'm going to review that just a little because it's so important for what we're talking about today. Okay, I'm going to skip two slides, Jennifer. Thank you. Now, we're talking about the first... Oh, actually, go back one. Sorry. I, I, yeah. We're, so the first problem is there's this misunderstanding, reign versus realm. And to clarify, he's talking about reign, which is super important, a period of time when God rules. Okay? The second problem, and this is probably what causes most of the confusion, and, and for good reason. In fact, scholars... <laughs> theologians are still arguing about this one and, and have been for centuries because it's so confusing, is that Jesus speaks about the kingdom in two different ways. He, on the one hand, he speaks about the kingdom as a future event, and I spent one, if you remember, one whole message talking about all these different scriptures where it's all future, 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 future. But at the exact same time, Jesus talks about it as a present reality. Just think about the verse we just quoted. The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand, meaning it's now. Repent, believe the good news that it's here now. Okay? And so it's like, wait a minute, Jesus. How is it that the kingdom of God's future and present? And how, how, do, you, how do you wrap your mind around that one? And that's where a lot of the confusion is, Right? So what we spent time talking about the last couple times is essentially Jesus talking about kingdom as future. Then last time we talked about some scriptures where he talks about it being fulfilled now. Okay, and now, now where we're going with this is trying to reconcile this seeming contradiction, even though it's not a contradiction. Okay, so, so 
the, the reason this is so important to reconcile this is because, like I said, it's essential to understanding the whole New Testament. What I was saying earlier, right? If we want to be people who are fully word, fully spirit, how are, we need uh, this framework to understand the word fully and to understand the significance of the spirit fully. So it's crucial for that. Now, if those of you who weren't here, I'm just going to give you a couple of examples of scriptures of what I'm talking about to show you some concrete examples that, the, that Jesus talks about in these two different ways. So the first is the kingdom of God is future. And there's a whole bunch of scriptures, but here I'm just going to give you a couple. So Matthew 25, 31, and 34. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, he'll sit on his glorious throne. Then the king will say to those in his, on his right, Come, who are you blessed of my Father? Take your inheritance. The kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. He's talking future. This is going to happen someday in the future. Another verse, Luke, this is at the Lord's table. Luke twenty-two fifteen through 18. And he said to them, I've eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I'll not eat it again until it finds its fulfillment in the kingdom of God. After taking the cup, he gave thanks and said, take this, divide it among yourselves. For I tell you, I will not drink it again or again from the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. It's like, wait a minute, Jesus. I thought you just told us the kingdom of God came. The kingdom of God's at hand. What do you mean when the kingdom comes? I thought it was already here. Right? So the, that's, that's part of the confusion, potential confusion, is that these aren't the only scriptures. If it was the only case that Jesus talked about a future, 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 that's fine. It's like, okay, it's all in the future. Just like what John the Baptist and all the other, his other contemporaries were prophesying is future, future, future. But the problem is those aren't the only scriptures. And just as significantly he talks about it is already being here. Okay? And I already said that. The kingdom of God is at hand. So here's just a couple scriptures uh, showing that Jesus said it's a present reality. The first one is from Luke 16, 16. The law and the prophets were proclaimed until John the Baptist. Since that time, the good news of the kingdom of God is being preached and everyone's forcing their way into it. So you see how this divides history in this age, the age to come. Up until John, the law and the prophets, that was the Old Testament. And then since John, the kingdom of God, the gospel has been preached. And every, how do we know? Because he's saying people are, since John, have been entering into it. So if it, if it hadn't come, that wouldn't be possible, right? That it's being preached and people are entering into it. So it's a present reality. Another scripture that makes this pretty clear is, during the Beelzebub controversy. So I'm just going to give you the one scripture, but this is in the context where Jesus is casting out a demon and the Pharisees are like, hey, you're casting out demons by Beelzebub and Jesus lets them have it. And look at what he says here, verse 28. But if it is by the Spirit of God that I drive out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Right? That's the evidence the kingdom is here. Notice he's talking about the spirit because, and we'll talk about this more later, is that was the one thing that they were looking for, the demarcation of history that the spirit comes, that means the kingdom of God is here. So God's stronger man has come, bound up the strong man by casting out demons and spoiling his house, Mark 3, 27. In this context, saying, I bound up Satan, now I'm plundering his house by casting out demons. So then the question becomes that I've already raised, how do we reconcile these two sets 
of materials. How do we come to terms with this fact that Jesus talks about it in these two different ways? And he's not the only one. If I had time, and I don't, I had a whole bunch of New Testament, other writers, uh, and probably maybe someday I'll do this, but in other books of the Bible, saying this very, Paul, for instance, talks about kingdom future, kingdom now as well. Um, I think it's safe to say almost all the New Testament writers talk about it in that way. But anyway, I want to remind us of something we talked about last week in this context, that we want to be people who are totally 100% word, totally 100% spirit. False dichotomy. And Satan tries to pit one against the other, but we want both full on. Now, part of the difficulty that people have embracing the full counsel of God is that there's often this paradox in Scripture. This is a perfect illustration of what we're talking about today. There is seeming contradictions that are hard to understand, and they really are. And this is why people get in weird theology, because... You know, the, the gospel will say something and then there will be scriptures that totally contradict it. And then, you, then some people feel like they have to pick one. And it's kind of funny when you show them the scriptures that contradict it, they have to like try and rationalize them away as if they don't exist. And they come up with all these weird explanations. No, that's not what he's saying. <laughs> and it's just weird, right? But, but, but you have to understand and have sympathy there are these paradoxes. I mean, it's, it's just a matter of fact. I, I don't deny that. People, people will say, hey, there's contradictions. There are. But they're not contradictions. According to our human logic, they're contradictions. They're both true. And that's where we have problems. Because we are so influenced by the Greek mindset way of thinking with logic that we cannot fathom something being true and the opposite also being true. It's like we've been brought up to think logically, if this is true, the opposite is false. But that's not the case. In fact, most of the world, uh, anyway, that's another story for another day. i got to stay on track today. So without the Holy Spirit helping us, the tendencies to rationalize the way scriptural truth that doesn't conform to our understanding or make sense to us or scriptures we just don't like, right? We, I mean, we, we all do that, and, and it's, it's not good. <laughs> Remember... Uh, the path of life, we're going to be talking about this right now, the path of life, we have to stand, because for every mile of road, there's two miles of ditch, and if you get too far on one side, you get an error. The tendency is to go too far on the other side. You, you have to stay in the path of life, which is holding these truths in tension, the radical middle. We have to fully embrace the word and the spirit. So radical middle is the perfect balance between biblical truths and tension. That's why I say, like... Uh, anyway, I, sorry, I, I got to stay on track today. There's so much I want to talk about. There are a number of such tensions in the Bible. We talked about this last week, but I want to throw up that uh, uh, graph again showing you the, these different tensions. These are just some examples, okay? So right down the middle, I have the path of life, the radical middle. Here's one. Jesus is God. Jesus is man. Whoa. <laughs> right? I mean... Still, people have problems reconciling that one. So how do we get around it? We just say, well, Jesus is fully God. He's fully man. And we just let God deal with that one. Right? The and this is the one we're talking about. The kingdom's already here. The kingdom's not yet. Here's one. Being, of the, being in the world, but not being of the world. Standing for unity, standing for truth, which often creates division. Say by faith, not by works. Faith without works is dead. On and on, and here's, you can read them for yourself. I, 
want to move on. But you see my point, right? There's a whole bunch, and these are just a few of these paradoxes in Scripture. So which one's true? And the key is the spirit of truth will teach you and lead you and guide you in all truth. You know, this is the thing, and this is the problem. We want law. Let's just admit it. We want law. You know, people get saved, and we say you're saved by grace, and they come to our church, and then might be implicit. But here's the hundred Christian rules that you have to follow now. Don't drink, don't smoke, on and on and on and on. And, he, and though we might not say it, here's, here's the law, but we know it. Okay, these are the rules. Don't do this, don't do that, do this, don't do that. Black and white. Why? Because we, we have a pro- God wants us to be led by the Spirit. And that's not easy. Let me tell you why. Because there's these paradoxes. So, God might tell you to do something, like don't watch TV. Okay. So, so then you go to the next person. Hey, you know what? God told me not to watch TV. Watching TV's wrong. Right? But you know what? God might have told that other person that he wants him to watch TV. You know, I know people, God said, I want you to watch a bunch of movies because God spoke to them through it. So wait a minute, which is it then? If we, if we go by the standard of what the Holy Spirit's telling us to do, then we want to make a law out of it and put that and project it on other people and say, therefore, this is what we all have to do. That's not how it is. You know, Jesus, uh, I like this analogy of a runner. Okay? Like, if you're, if you're a marathon runner, your diet is going to be different and more strict than someone who just jogs occasionally. And their diet's probably going to be more strict than those who don't jog at all. Okay? It's the same thing. God has different purposes and callings, and there's different things that are stumbling blocks for people. So he might tell somebody, listen, I don't want you to watch TV. And it might genuinely be the Lord. And the next person, he might say, hey, I want you to watch TV. Not a contradiction. Life in the Spirit. That's what we're called to. We're called to walk by the Spirit. And because it's not black and white and we want law, we want it to be clear cut because it's just easier. Just easier. Okay, here's the hundred rules I have to follow. Right? <laughs> but it's not that. It, God did this intentionally because he wants relationship. It's that simple. I believe there's these paradox in Scripture because God wants relationship. Go figure. So we actually need to rely and depend on the Holy Spirit. And you know what? For the first 300 years before the Bible existed, they did pretty good, didn't they? Being led by the Spirit. Just read the book of Acts. They didn't have a Bible. Their Bible was the Old Testament. That's it. The Bible wasn't written yet. It was being written at the time. I love the Bible, though, so don't get me wrong. But the point is, it's about life in the Spirit. And, that, and that's why there's these paradox, I believe. I believe because God doesn't want us in law. And so... Um, there you go. Now, with that being said, I want to say this. Today, I'm going to try and reconcile. We'll see if I, what I get through today. Maybe today, maybe we'll try a couple days. I don't know. But at least today, I'm going to see what I do and, and at least start trying to reconcile this because it's so crucial to reconcile this, okay? How it's both future and present. Because like I said, super important to understanding the whole New Testament because they had this as an understanding. The essential framework. Now, how do we reconcile this? I'm going to say by talking about the message, or the mystery, rather, of the kingdom of God. What Jesus called the mystery of the kingdom. The mystery of the kingdom. So, that's the way forward, I believe. Reconciling this. 
The mystery of the kingdom, which has two sides to it. And you'll see it's two sides to the same coin. They're related. The first, and we talked a lot about this last time, actually, is that the, Jesus said that the kingdom's already at work dynamically in his own ministry. The kingdom's now at work in him, in Jesus Christ. And the second is that it's present in weakness, in Jesus himself, which is what everybody has a problem with, the people of his, his day and the, and the people of our day. That it's present in weakness. And I'm going to elaborate on that, God willing, today. But I do want to talk about this without going into too much overlap. But if you're interested, you can listen to the last message I preached on December 18th. Just go online or iTunes. But the first part of the mystery is that the dramatic inbreaking of the rule of God that they were all looking for and waiting for. And they were, it was like to fever pitch where they're like, it's going to happen any minute had begun with Jesus of Nazareth. So the great day of the future that they've been spending hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years waiting for had already stepped in on the human scene God had to rule through Jesus of Christ, through Jesus of Nazareth, rather. In other words, it was the beginning of the end when he came on the scene. Now, I, this war, I think this is important. I'm going to try and do this quickly because I'd spend a whole session on this one. The intertestamental period is so important for understanding this because there was a period of about 430 years between Malachi and John the Baptist. And they called this period of time the time of the quenched spirit. Why? Because they believe the spirit left. Just look at Ezekiel chapter 10. The spirit left. Therefore, there's no prophetic voice in the land. That's why there's no books in the Bible at that time. So because the Holy Spirit was gone, there's no prophets. And the one thing, and I'm going to get to this in a minute, the one thing that would be evidence that the kingdom of God has come is that the Holy Spirit comes back. Okay? So let me just uh, go into this a little more. And, and like I said, because this is the, the 400 years before, so when Jesus came on the scene, this is where they are all at. This is what most of them believed, what I'm about to show you. So, in the intertestamental period, some major eschatological adjustments uh, took place, which Jesus and the New Testament are heirs. Eschatological, fancy pants word for the end times. Okay? Eschatology means the end, or eschaton, rather. Anyway, many people gave up on God doing something within history. You guys might recognize the language of the latter days. In the latter days, the latter days, because all the prophets, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, uh, Isaiah, they'll, in the latter days. So they all thought it was going to happen in history. Then they went into captivity, thought, okay, now that we're, Jerusalem's being restored, this means that the day of salvation, the day of the Lord is here, the latter days, but, but it didn't happen. So they were like super bummed out is an understatement. They gave up on the fact Jesus or God was going to do something in history. And instead, the shift takes place where they thought, okay, it's not that God's going to do something within history. He's going to bring an end to history. He's going to just totally come on the scene and, and new heaven, new earth, get rid of all of his enemies. And then the people of God are going to be here. And it's going to be awesome. The lion and the lamb are going to eat together. It's going to be amazing. Okay, so they gave up on history. This is God's going to bring an end. New heaven, new earth, bam, okay? He's going to bring in an entirely new era. See, before they thought, okay, this king, these promises about a new king, the king David, his, it's going to be an actual king who's going to come rule the nations and it's going to be awesome. They gave up on that. No, God's going to totally just get rid of history. 
Do something totally new. The new age. They, the new age movement actually stole that word from us. It's actually a biblical word, eon. But anyway, totally new era. So, therefore, the day of the Lord that the prophets had been prophesying about became thoroughly eschatological, the time of the end, the end times. It's just going to be, get rid of everything, it's going to be brand new, catastrophic, bam. And what happened is it shifted to this two-age worldview, and this is especially in the apocalyptic literature, which I talked all about back then. You can listen to that message if you're interested. They divided time in two ages. This age which had evil, oppression, demonic, no Holy Spirit, and the age to come. How many of you recognize that language? Because Jesus uses it. Paul uses it. All these New Testament writers use this language, this age, the age to come. Came from this intertestamental period. The age to come became known as the kingdom of God. Notice the word kingdom of God isn't in the Old Testament. Why? Because it actually developed during this 400 years of the intertestamental period. So... Because it was the time of the quenched spirit, one of the things that happened in this Old Testament expectation was looking for the age to come as an age of the spirit. Joel 2.28 became totally eschatological. Right? I'm going to pour out my spirit on all flesh. Sons and daughters will prophesy. They, they took scriptures like that and said, this is evidence kingdom of God's come, that this new age has come. That's why Acts chapter 2 when the Holy Spirit came, they quoted Joel. This is evidence that the kingdom of God we've been waiting for for all these hundreds of years is here, right now. What did John the Baptist say when he is prophesying about Jesus? Another one greater than I is going to come in what? Baptize you in Holy Spirit and fire. Because they all were waiting for the Spirit to come. So this is the evidence, the ultimate man of the Spirit. Isaiah 11, Isaiah 42, Isaiah 61. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me for... I do all these things, right? Set the captive free, preach the good news. In fact, when Jesus first got on the scene after the wilderness, he went to his, uh, the synagogue in his hometown. What did he do? Opens Isaiah 61. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, for he has anointed me. No, 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 no. This is fulfilled in your hearing. Sits down. <laughs> all these promises that you've been waiting for, the Messiah, the ultimate man of the Spirit, I'm him. A few verses later, they wanted to throw him off a cliff. Go figure. <laughs> Who is this guy? This is Joseph's son, right? He played soccer with Johnny when they were teenagers. What are you talking about? They had a problem with that. That's what we're talking about. Jesus. The kingdom came with Jesus as part of the mystery. <laughs> okay? So this is just quickly, just graphically for visual people. Just think of it. This age, age to come, the end. So demarcation, God comes, bam, then the new age comes and totally gets rid of this age. So this age was considered Satan's age. It had evil, oppression, demonic presence, and sickness. That's why Jesus cast out a lot of demons, healed the sick, because it's evidence to them that, hey, I'm overtaking Satan's rule now because the kingdom of God is here. That's what they're expecting. No, and the time of no spirit, injustice reigns, all this bad stuff. So then they thought, okay, God's going to come, bam, brand new age, and it's going to be the kingdom of God, they call it, the kingdom of God. A great reversal is going to happen, especially the overthrow of Satan. Usually dramatic and climactic when, when the apocalyptic literature talks about it. It's like, you read the book of Revelation, that kind of gives you a glimpse of what these uh, Jewish apocalyptic uh, writers wrote like, Okay. 
Um, usually it had a Messiah, and um, again, the evidence above everything else is the coming of the Spirit. These were Jewish end-time expectations, okay, that everybody had, most people had. So when John the Baptist comes on the scene, he says, repent, the kingdom of God is near. Everyone freaked out because they're like, oh my goodness, this thing we've been waiting for for 400 years right around the corner. I'm not right with God. I got to repent. You think, why would people go out to the wilderness and watch some guy who has nasty dreadlocks probably and camel skin clothing and eating locusts and honey and they went to him? Another reason is because he was a prophet. And for 430 years, there were no prophets. The spirits come back, right? They were excited. And they, they were like, we got to get right with God. Notice nobody asks, what do you mean the kingdom of God? They all had this as a framework. So the time of God, oh yeah, the coming age, this is their expectations. And you got you to gotta know this because when Jesus came, it was totally different completely different than what they were expecting. Totally. Like, not even close. Totally, totally. Radical shift had to take place in their understanding. Because they're expecting that this coming age would be ushered in by a supernatural intervention, usually accompanied by a powerful Messiah, who would come and take over. He would come and bash the Romans' heads in. Bam! There you go. You're enemies of God. Right? Um, restore the nation to its former glory, bring the spirit back, deliver the oppressed, because they were under Roman occupation. So of course the Messiah is going to come and get rid of all these Romans who are oppressing us. So this time of God's rule, the kingdom of God it became known as. 400 years of this. Okay? And like I said, it was at fever pitch when John came on the scene any second now. This is going to happen. They're excited. Now, so they're looking for this dramatic ending of history, but they get Jesus. Right? This, like, guy from, does anything good come from Nazareth? A Nazarene? Yeah. (laughs) Uh, I was going to say a joke, but I won't for, about new fees, but anyway. Fisherman from Nazarene. <laughs> I'll just tell you, you know, when Peter's denying Christ and the woman's like, hey, I know you're one of the disciples. Your accent gives you away. They were newfies. They were newfies. They're Nazareth fishermen, right? Anyway, sorry if you're from Newfoundland. It's just, anyway, <laughs> it's a joke. I'm from Manitoba, so there you go. All right. So instead of being anything like this dramatic conclusion, they get a servant Messiah, a suffering servant Messiah. Okay? So even though though the people who recognized him as Messiah had no understanding of what he was doing, his disciples had no clue till the day he was crucified. A crucified Messiah? That is the ultimate contradiction, oxymoron. Crucifixion was the most hideous. It was a swear word. Did you know the It's funny, we wear crosses. They, there's writers at the time, they considered it a swear word, crucifixion. It was that horrible. It was, you know, Roman citizens couldn't be crucified. It was only runaway slaves and insurrectionists, the worst kind of death. 
a crucified Messiah. You know what that would be like if you were down in the U.S. and there was capital punishment and some guy was got the wheelchair, or wheelchair, sorry, electric chair. Hey, guys, guess what? I have good news. You know, John, who got the electric chair, he's the Messiah. Think about how weird that is. If someone came to you and was like, yeah, our Messiah got electric chair, died, good news. <laughs> what? That's what they thought. Like, it was crazy. That's why Paul calls it a scandal. In 1 Corinthians 1, 18 through 23, he calls it foolishness. He says, look, Greeks are looking for a, uh, wisdom. Jews are looking for a sign. But we have God's wisdom. You know what it is? A crucified Messiah. God's wisdom. Because it's so foolishness to human wisdom. Only God could do something like that. And it'd actually be him that saves the world. So contrary to our expectations and understanding. The suffering Messiah. So their understanding is like, hey, Jesus, these people don't like you. Fire from heaven. Because <laughs> that's what the, right? We're with the Messiah. God's going to come and do that to his enemies. So come on, let's pray. Fire come down. Burn up the city that rejected you. And Jesus is like, you don't get it still. You know? Or hey, Jesus, let me sit at your right, my brother on your left. You know, and Jesus has to just totally, totally rearrange their ideas. Like, guys, you don't get it. The greatest in the kingdom is the servant of all. Children. Unless you become like children, you're not even going to enter the kingdom. He had to, and they still didn't get it, right? No, people just had no grid for how Jesus came, okay? So, <laughs> I don't even remember where I am here on the PowerPoint. <laughs> how can something be both present and future? We'll get that good, that's a good spot, Jennifer. Thank you. Where, where is that? <laughs> Um, okay, I don't know where we are. <laughs> well, okay, so the question we raised, if you can find this, Jennifer. The, oh, that's right. The question we raised a bit ago, how can something be both present and future? The answer is Jesus Christ. It was present in Jesus Christ. Think about this, because we're talking about God's rule. The time of God's rule. The king is here, present, ruling and reigning. So where the king is reigning, the kingdom is. Where the king is, the kingdom is. So it's present with Jesus Christ because he's the king of kings and the Lord of lords. And that's the point. Time when God ushers his rule in. But rather than being a dramatic conclusion to history they're looking for, it turns out to be like a mustard seed. It turns out to be like Jesus. That's... I'll, Time, but later I was going to talk about his parables. He uses this in the parables to get people to understand this truth. Look, the kingdom of God is like a mustard seed. It's like nothing, but it's going to grow, and it's going to be the biggest garden herb so that even birds perch on it, just like Jesus was. So, in Jesus, God's rule is already present and taking place. Look at this. This is funny. Like, I'm talking about people are looking... Why do you think the Pharisees like, give us a sign, give us a sign, give us a sign, give us a sign? You know, Jesus wouldn't do it because they're expecting these dramatic signs. So look at this. 
One, once being asked by the Pharisees, when, remember, talking about when, it's a time, right? They're not asking, where's the kingdom? When's the kingdom of God going to come? Jesus replied, the coming of the kingdom of God is not something that can be observed. Normal people say, here it is, or there it is, because the kingdom of God is in your midst, people. It's here. In fact, I'm the king of this kingdom. It's already in your midst. And they're like, hey, show us a sign. Show us a It's here. Because it was so contrary to their expectations. The kingdom is already making its way felt in the world because the king had come. And it's not yet in the sense that what had begun had not yet reached its consummation. Okay, so the kingdom of God was inaugurated with the coming of Jesus Christ, but it's yet to be consummated at the second coming of Jesus Christ. So, it's already. So that's the point of the whole New Testament. The kingdom is here. God's rule has already begun in our world. Now live like that, because it's true. It's already made its presence known. The Spirit's already come, and it's available to all God's people already right now. It's amazing. It's not something that's yet to come. It's something that's already taken place. And that's how people missed it. They're looking for something, and he came totally contrary to that expectation. So that's the first part of the mystery. The first part of the coin is that it came with Jesus. And the second part, and you can see how it's related, is the nature of the Messiahship, totally contrary to their expectations. That it's present in weakness in Jesus himself. Suffering servant. Totally different than what they were thinking. And this is the part people still can't handle. This is the part, someday we'll get into this, where Paul had such issues with the Corinthians. And so many people, because they couldn't, they're so triumphalistic, they're like, that guy's weak. That guy can't preach worth nothing. And he's like, guys, that's the point. That's how, right? I'm following in the footsteps of Jesus, our Messiah. That's how he lived and walked. So, Jesus does a radical reinterpretation of what the kingdom of God is all about. So the mystery, Jesus says, in effect, is that what you see is what you get. <laughs> the problem was what they saw it didn't fit their expectations. It's stumbling block to them. They're looking for the wrong thing in the wrong direction. Okay? And like I said, waiting for kingdom come, great, dramatic, powerful eruption from above that would bring a dramatic, climactic conclusion to everything. But what they got was an itinerant rabbi with a motley crew of followers, a friend and companion of the oppressed, and the sinners. Jesus, what are you doing? Why, is, why are you eating those sinners? They just couldn't wrap their heads around it. He's like, hey, guys, guess what? The kingdom is here, and that's why. Already God's gracious salvation and mercies come, and the great reversal's taken place. Remember, we talked about this last time. The first will be last, the last will be first. So, totally, okay, this is something else. John the Baptist, you remember this. Matthew 11, 2 to 5, John sent his disciples. Are you the coming one, or should we expect someone else? Why? The very guy who prophesied about the coming Messiah saw Jesus Christ, said, this is the Messiah, baptized him, the floodgates of heaven open, Holy Spirit comes, voice from heaven. Are you the coming one? (laughs) 
Because Jesus was so different. So different than what they're expecting. So different than what even John was expecting. Because you remember John's message. Judgment. Wrath of God's coming, people. Get right with God. Because that kingdom of God, wrath of God's coming. Right? He's going to burn up the chaff. Get right with God. And then Jesus comes and preaches the good news of the kingdom. John's message was the bad news. And here's this guy preaching the good news, doing everything wrong in their eyes. Like, wait a minute, we were supposed to take over these Romans who have me in prison right now. Are you him? So then Jesus points to the signs. Tell John what you hear and say. And he basically quotes Isaiah 61, verse 1. The blind see, the, right? The great reversal's taking place, healing, all the stuff. They just simply couldn't believe this carpenter of Nazareth was God's Messiah. They just couldn't believe it. So, they already knew how God was going to do things, right? And what God's Messiah would look like. Power, splendor, glory, might, abundance. These were their categories. But what they saw was what they got. Gentleness, meekness, servant of the poor. No trampling of the enemy. The Romans were still here. He didn't even address it. They just couldn't believe it. They just could not believe it. And that was why the Pharisees had such a problem with Jesus. Now, here, this key, this, the key to all of this lies with Jesus' self-understanding. Okay, so Jesus knew that the coming of the great kingdom had already made its appearance in him in his ministry. Okay, but not as this mighty invasion from the outside, not as a great cataclysmic conclusion to history, but in his own person and ministry. So, it's him... It's in him that the powerful kingdom of the future is already at work in the world, in Jesus. But the kingdom had come in veiled power. No overthrow of the hated enemy, Rome. No eliminating those in opposition. All these things, and you have to understand, they had good reason to think this because look at the Old Testament prophecies about the day of the Lord. Most of them about judgment. Like 90% of them, judgment, 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 10% of salvation. Okay, so they're expecting this, bam, judgment on all God's enemies, and Jesus comes and gives his enemies mercy, <laughs> right? And they just couldn't wrap their head around this. So, this is the mystery of the kingdom, and all the gospels tell us that Jesus alone knew the secret. Now, he tried. He tried to let his disciples in on this secret. They just couldn't. They couldn't. It was too far outside their box for them to get it. They just couldn't believe that the Messiah would go to the cross. Like, you th think about in Matthew 16, when Jesus is like, hey, who do people say I am? Some people say this, that, and the other. Who do you say I am? Jesus or Peter. You're the Son of God, the Messiah, the Son of the living God. And Jesus is like, you're right. The Father revealed this to you. Awesome. And I'm going to build my church on this. Then the very next verse, Jesus, it says, from this day forward, told me how he's going to have to suffer and be killed. And what does Peter do? No, Lord, this isn't going to happen to you. Then what does Jesus say? Get behind me, Satan. They could not fathom that he would go and die like that. They just couldn't. That's not what a Messiah does. A Messiah comes and bashes the enemies. They don't let the enemies bash them. Right? So it's, the kingdom of God's totally different than their popular expectations. And the real power lies in what appears to be weakness in merely human eyes. That's the key to the power. Jesus alone understood that the kingly Messiah was in fact the suffering servant. That the lion of the tribe of Judah was in fact the lamb to be slain for the sins of Judah and the world. He alone knew that God was about to triumph over his enemies, all right? But by loving them to death. 
his own death. (laughs) Go figure. Not by bashing their heads in. He's going to win them by love. Wow, this is a backwards kingdom. Backwards to this world, this evil age, right? He knew the secret of the kingdom, that judgment on Satan and the evil had in fact begun. And we talked about this, right? With the casting out of demons, the healing of the sick, accepting the lowly, the sinner, the disfranchised. The overthrow of Satan was happening already. He further knew about the kingdom that salvation was no political national restoration, which is what they were all expecting. But was found in the fact that God freely and graciously accepted sinners. And that the lowly were brought to the good news of the acceptance of God. He knew that the mystery of the kingdom is that it comes in ways we least expect it. Weakness, sacrifice, suffering, the cross, and we've all been set up for something else. We all think it's going to look different. He says, actually, if you want to follow me, you've got to lay down your lives. Take up your cross and follow me. You've got to be the least to be the greatest. You've got to be the servant of all. To be the greatest. You got to be like kids to be the greatest. What kind of kingdom is this? But Jesus knew the secret and the mystery of the kingdom. This is the way of the kingdom. Jesus teaches that the, teaches that the kingdom of God doesn't come the way we're looking. That, that's why Jesus says these interesting things in his parables. Here's just a few examples. The kingdom of God's like a mustard seed, people. Trying to explain these mysteries. It's like a mustard seed. It's the least of the garden seeds. But when it fully blooms, when it's consummated, it's the greatest of garden plants. It's like seed growing secretly. It's like the kind of thing we're not looking for. You don't see it, but all of a sudden, there it is. It's like leaven. It's like leaven and meal. It doesn't look like anything, but somehow... When it's placed in that dough, the whole thing is finally penetrated by it. (laughs) The secrets of the kingdom. He's trying to get them to understand this through everyday parables. So what's the point? That the dynamic kingdom's already present, but in what seems small and insignificant. That's the problem lots of people have with it. Totally different than what they thought. Now, there's a great and final future to the kingdom, but... It's the consummation that of what's already been done. So that's already happening now. It's what's already that's not yet. So with Jesus' own understanding of his own ministry, we have the essential, like I've said, eschatological framework of the whole New Testament. For him, the kingdom's clearly both already and not yet. Jesus understood the kingdom to be inaugurated with himself and his ministry. Hence the term inaugurated eschatology is what this kind of idea is called. Now, this is all throughout the New Testament. Here's just one example, one verse. 1 John 3-2. Dear friends, now already we are children of God, and what we will be has not yet been made known. But know that when Christ appears, we shall be like him For we shall see him as he is. So get, right? Already we are what we're going to be, but we are not yet what we're going to (laughs) be. And believe it or not, everything in the New Testament is predicated on that reality. And therefore, the diagram changes. Okay? The diagram I showed you earlier, the line, the end, and this age and the age to come. This age, so we're now dealing with an eschaton that's a long period of time. Longer than what they expected. 
We're dealing with the fact that the kingdom has begun and it's to be consummated in the future. So just quick, here's the thing I showed you earlier. Changes to something like this. Next slide, please, Jennifer. Thank you. <laughs> Might look like a lot at first, but let me just... This age, the kingdom of darkness, began at the fall. Then we get the promise of the Messiah. So this age, the kingdom of darkness, Paul calls it flesh. We're going to talk about all that one day. Spirit versus flesh, this is what he's talking about. He's actually talking about living in the flesh, this age, this current evil age of darkness. This age of the spirit is living from the age of the spirit now. So right now, you see, when the first coming of Christ came, the age to come came with Jesus, the kingdom of light, the age of the spirit. That's why we're called to walk by the spirit. We're actually living from the future now in this present evil age. So right now, there's, there's this overlapping of ages. Okay, you see that there. The last days already not yet. It's begun, not consummated. And we are supposed to be children of this the age of the Spirit, children of God, living by the Spirit as he produces the fruit of the Spirit, the character of God in us. This is why, oh, someday I'll talk all about this, but why Paul calls the Spirit the first fruits, the deposit, the guarantee of what's to come. Okay, all this language they use because this is their idea of what it looks like. We're living there, this current age now, but we're supposed to be living from the age to come. That's why Jesus talks about in the Sermon on the Mount, the kingdom of God, the ethics all of us are like, this is crazy stuff, Jesus. This is totally crazy. But that's because that's how people live in heaven, in the future. So we're supposed to, by the Spirit, live that way now in the present age to show them the character of God and what God's like. And then you have the second coming of Christ, and that's eternity. Now let me give you, I'll try and be quick, an uh, analogy a real-life analogy that might help us understand this. How many of you know the date of D-Day? Talking about World War II. Anyone? What is it? The date. Wow, God. okay, June 6, 1944. Does anyone know what D-Day is? D-Day is essentially the battle that won the war. Okay, you've heard of the beaches of Normandy. When five great armies, the Allied armies, got together and in one day for 20 hours fought and established five beachheads on the beach of Normandy, the soil of Normandy, planted the flags of the Allies and essentially said, this is ours. Okay, that was the day Hitler was defeated. That day was the day Hitler was defeated. Now, after that day, it was never, never a question of if... They were going to win the war. It was a question of when they were going to win the war. Everyone knew, okay, this is it. That was the deciding battle that won the war. Now, to be sure, the war was fought for 11 more months. And those were 11 horrific months. In fact, more Americans died during those 11 months than all the years before that in every battle. Okay? And even when times were tough, no one ever questioned. It was never a question of who was going to win or what the outcome was going to be. Never. V-Day, how many of you know the date of V-Day? Victory Day, the day the, world, the war was officially over. It's either May 7th or 8th, depending who you ask, 1945. 
V-Day, what does it stand for? Victory Day. That day had been determined by D-Day. Okay? There was still suffering. There was still killing. There was, but it had been determined. That was the deciding point. And that's exactly what we're talking about here. When Jesus came, <laughs> can you go to the last slide, Jennifer? Sorry. When Jesus came, that was D-Day. That was it. Satan was done just like Hitler. Jesus came, planted the cross, said, this turf is mine. This turf is mine, Satan. Your days are counted. Now, it's never been a question of if God was going to have victory. When? The only question. It, we've won. We've won, period. Now, now, Jesus calls us to be part of this mopping up operation, so to speak. If you think about the time between D-Day and V-Day, it was a mopping up operation. He's called us to participate in this battle against Satan until the ultimate day of victory comes with the second coming. Okay? Can you go to the last slide, Jennifer? So, just in conclusion, the end is dawned. The decisive battle of the holy war is now engaged. In his casting out of demons... Can you go to the last slide? Oh. And, oh, I must have took it out. In his casting out of demons, he beheld the fall of Satan. God's stronger man's dealt the enemy the decisive crippling blow. But he did it through weakness and suffering. Not through the kind of glory and power and might that we want of God. The future has already entered the present age. God has already triumphed. He's already secured our life. What he's asking us to do is live the life of the future in the present age. That's what he's asking us to do. Show people what heaven's like. We live between these times, living out the future that's to come, but living out in the present is what Christian ethics is all about, what the whole New Testament is predicated on. And on that note, I'll end there. <laughs> oh, go for it. Yeah. Well, just as he was speaking, I was just feeling the Lord highlighting. If you just go ahead and close your eyes really quick. But I just want to allow the Holy Spirit to speak to you quickly. If there's an area in your life where you felt like you were underneath, but you're actually on top. That as he's talking about how the kingdom is and what Jesus did on the cross and how this servant kingdom was not what they expected. If there's an area of your life that's not what you expected, but I just feel like God's speaking to you, that in that area you actually are reigning by serving. And I just bless you in that area. And God, I just thank you that you are reigning through us in weakness. That in areas of our life where we feel like things should be flipped upside down, where we feel like we should have a promotion or, or have, get credit or um, have what we need in a certain area. But in this area, God, you've called us to, to suffer with you. And that in that, there's actually more glory than we could ever know. So God, we thank you for that. In Jesus' name, amen. Oh, good message, honey. <laughs> um, if you guys would like prayer for anything, uh, we would love to pray for you. If not, we have hospitality through that door. You take a left. We have some tea, coffee, snacks that you're very welcome to. And we love you all, and we'll see you next week.